0: That's right, Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. We're basking in the afterglow of a brilliant UK Championship. Oh, we're basking, all right. A uh, terrific week in York, nine days, which culminated in Mark Allen beating Ding Jun Wee Ted Seven from 6-1 down to become UK champion for the first time he's the 13th player to win back-to-back ranking titles third ranking final in a row Uh, clearly in ranking events the player of the season and uh, very, very impressive all-round performance he set his stall out how he was going to play I think all week which is more of a kind of percentage game maybe than we've seen before from him and he didn't panic when he was 6-1 down I think he believed in his game plan. And uh, in the evening, he started to make the breaks, which he hadn't done in the afternoon. Dinger, of course, had four centuries in the final. I mean, time was, you know, that would be enough, more than enough to win, probably quite easily. But Mark Allen, just tough. And certainly, I think, when any match goes close, and we saw this against Jack Luzowski as well in the semi-finals, when any match goes close, you kind of fancy Allen. The bottle he has is something you can't really teach. I think you're either born with that or you're not. He is. He's a tough character. He's a great player. And... Well, I, I was very impressed not only with just how he played and, and how, he, how he won, but his comments afterwards saying, right, back on the practice table. Um, he's going to German Masters qualifying. But by the time you hear this, we'll know whether he's beaten Peter Lyons or not in Leicester. If he loses, it's not a great surprise <laughs> because there might be a hangover, quite literally, after a Sunday. But actually, the attitude he's shown is, no, I want to press on. I want to press on and not just sort of celebrate a couple of wins, but keep going. And try and have well, I think it's already his most successful season ever. But build up towards, of course, the World Championship, where he's never really done anything. One semi-final, two thousand and nine. Clearly, his new attitude and just the toughness in his game suggests he can now become world champion. It's a long way till the World Championships. Five months away in April, so you know it's a bit early to start sort of tipping him now. (coughs) Excuse me, but clearly a great performance and a great week. I've thoroughly enjoyed being at the Barbican in York, lovely city to be. There, uh, in any way But when well, the snooker's on Obviously even better And what I really liked Well it actually was Just the, the, the feeling in the crowd It was a really good atmosphere not, Didn't get sort of too rowdy Just to, It was lively But it was positive And that's the thing actually The positivity What an antidote to When you sort of go on social media And these joyless balls who just want to Complain about everything When people actually come And they've paid their own money They're determined to have a good time And they do And I was walked out on Sunday nights Half eleven when it finished and it's sort of, this, this northern lady, she, she was walking along with a friend, I, I just overheard them say, and she said, oh, I love that. She said, uh, mind you, I said, my husband won't be happy. I said, I'll be back in time for I'm a Celebrity, which of course was much earlier in the evening. But no, it, it, I was very impressed by the fact so many people stayed to the end, they weren't going to leave it, dis- despite the fact it was getting late, and just the good feeling there was. And that was enhanced, of course, by all the innovations backstage in the Q zone And just a really good week, and this is what we need more of, I guess. We can't just have it in the the sort of real big tournaments we need. it Hopefully in every event, we've spoken before on the podcast about the fan experience. If we can get more of this at all the events, then, you know, snooker really is in a good place in terms of the the fan experience. And, uh, you know, I I have uh, nothing bad to say about the tournament at all. I I really enjoyed it. I thought... uh, the, uh, the, the standard of snooker was high. It was interesting we didn't have a 140 break in the whole tournament, apart from in qualifying, so yu Yupeng won the high break. Um, so, you know, at times the standard could have been higher, but at times it was breathtaking. And Jack Mazowski's four centuries in a row in that match with Sean Murphy, who, by the way, then made one himself, that was terrific stuff. So we had a real mix. We had the sort of some tactical snooker, we had a lot of big breaks. It was just great. I thought it was a great week. Um, and, uh, well, let's get into the emails To find out what uh, what everyone else thought Becoming tradition, we start with Alpha Bonzi Because he's always very direct So this is what he says After Mark Allen lifts the trophy in York My three quick questions this week are Number one, I'll answer these one at a time, uh, Alpha Where does this year's torment leave the sport's relationship With the BBC and Eurosport? Well, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think it's changed in any way It was a very good relationship before They've both got long-term contracts I think they're both delighted with the figures and how the week went. And uh, well, put it this way: it's it's it's, it's no worse <laughs> than it was. Uh, number two: has the UK regained any of the prestige it's lost in recent years due to the Masters and Tour Championship? I think the answer to that is yes. I think that the focus on quality over quantity, just having the two tables, was a, a good move. I think the one thing people have said, and uh, Jimmy White said this actually at the weekend: obviously, it used to be longer matches. Best of seventeens. Now, I personally wouldn't have that from the start, but if it could, if there could be a slight tweak where maybe from the quarterfinals onwards the match you could get longer. Personally, I would like that, but obviously, we already mentioned the broadcasters. Maybe they just want to finish every session, you know. So you have to balance the two. Uh, the audiences seem to enjoy the format. That's just not to say they wouldn't enjoy the longer format. That's maybe the only change. But yeah, it definitely felt like a bigger tournament, and and the UK Championship less cluttered felt more elite and therefore more prestigious. So I think the changes did work. And number three, Alpha says, the current players joining the BBC commentary team, shouldn't they be (laughs) practising? Well, of course, this all came to a head on the Friday because the three they used, Sean Murphy, Joe Perry and Mark Allen, all actually made the quarterfinals, which meant they couldn't commentate. Uh, Rob Walker was drafted in. Um, Listen, I think people have different views on this. I think some people feel... It's a bit odd to have players who are playing in the tournament commentating because there's a theory that maybe it it sort of threatens the neutrality of what they're going to say if they're still involved themselves. I have to say though, I didn't hear Mark Allen, but the the other two, Sean and Joe, you know, you wouldn't have known they were playing in the tournament. They just commentated properly, and they're two good pros. Those two, Sean in particular, has taken to commentary very, very quickly, Um, and you know, he's he's clearly that's going to be his career when his playing career does finally come to an end. He's got in early, and I said, I actually saw him in York and I said this to him. This is nothing new. Players playing in the tournaments commentating. Dennis Taylor did this years ago. 40 years ago, Dennis was commentating when he was a top player, um, specifically for ITV. And John Virgo joined the BBC team when he was still, you know, a top player. Uh, Obviously, more recently, as Ken Doggerty and uh, and indeed Stephen Hendry. So it's nothing new, um, but it was kind of funny that it all came to a head. you know, when they all reach the quarterfinals. And they did have time to practice, you know. They, they, they're not on literally all day. There's time to practice. Um, I suppose that the thing is, I mean, everyone's different. Some players would not go, would not entertain the prospect of, of, of doing media work while they're playing. But there's a lot of hanging around at tournaments, actually. And a lot of times you, you are actually just in the players' room watching the match, or you might be in the hotel watching the match. So there's, there's an argument to say, yeah, why not just go, and, if you're offered commentary, go and do it. The only thing I would say is I do wonder about commentating on the day you're playing. I mean, afterwards is fine. (laughs) But beforehand, I'm not so sure. But anyway, that's up to the the guys. And they all, like I say, didn't hear Mark Allen. But uh, they all all did uh, a good job as far as I could see. Uh, Now then, who else have we got here? Callum Law has done a little review for us. He says, I just wanted to say what a terrific week of snooker we saw in York. To me, the UK Championship has re-established itself as one of the game's premier events. The venue looked great. The crowd seemed good all week. And for the players that managed to get through, I think having to qualify helped them. A lot of the seeds went out in the last 32, and to me, a lot of the victorious qualifiers looked sharper having come through tough qualifying matches to reach the venue. I wouldn't class myself as a Jimmy White fan, but as a lover of snooker, it was great to see him back on the big stage. It was also great to see Ding Junhui reminding us of his talents. The final got away from him with the first friend of the evening session perhaps a turning point. Ding was in and set for another big break, but poor positional play let him down. Every credit to Mark Allen... He seemed to get better and better as the final session went on. It's hard to pinpoint the difference in Alan but there seems to be an added intangible quality to his game in terms of the shots he plays and his mental approach. The only thing I would change about the UK Championship as it is now would be a return to best of 17 for the semi-finals but clearly that would mess with the format so I understand why it's likely it won't happen. I think the way the UK was this year is a massive improvement. If it's meant to be one of the game's three majors as WST and the BBC want us to believe then it should be special and this tournament most certainly was. All very positive from Callum, and yes, all, all all fair comment. Yeah, Mark Allen's mental approach definitely is a difference because his game's always been there. Um, but he's, he's working with someone. I think he's spoken about that. He's just happier as well off table. You know, the, the weight loss has been over sort of stated. I think that's happened. Good luck to him. But also, he's engaged again. He's happier in his personal life. he sort of got 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 things sorted out off the table. And Mark is always been very open about. You know the, the way he's spoken about his own life and his personal life. He's been a sort of an open book, um, and you know he's, he's admitted he he's struggled, but now he seems to be well. Clearly, clearly seems to be back uh, enjoying himself again, and uh, we're seeing that in his snooker. Richard Hamilton from Edinburgh, first-time caller. That, these are his words: uh, "With the revamp of the UK Championship, and elevating to feel like a prestigious event again, I had an, my idea a while back for a change, and wondered what your thoughts were." In years gone by, there was a million-pound prize fund for winning all four home nations, which was never won. Now, because we have a kazoo series for the top 32, 16, and 8 players on the one-year list... Actually, I should say, it's not actually kazoo. Um, They're not sponsoring that, but it's the Players' Series. It's the the World Grand Prix Players' Championship and Tour Championship. Uh, Anyway, Richard says, And the Betvictor Series for the shootout and European mainland events. I thought a series could be created around the home nations' events. It would require some schedule changes, but what I thought of was a money list across all four home nations events, and the top 32 would contest at the UK Championship. I personally feel, in years gone by, the Scottish Open in particular has been diminished, given it followed the UK most years, and winners generally pull out. And I feel this approach would give more prestige to these events, and maybe get the top players more incentive to play them all. Any thoughts you have would be appreciated. Richard, thank you. I'm not quite sure whether you mean this would literally be the way you qualify for the UK Championship, as opposed to pre-qualifying, or whether this would be in a, in effect, a new event. Um, if it was a new event, it sounds a great idea. Obviously, you need the usual things, broadcaster, sponsor, <laughs> prize money, venue, all that. If it's a way to qualify specifically for the UK Championship, I'm not so sure about that. I think um, because the UK Championship has nothing to do with those events. Now, there is a kind of common sense to what you say because they're the home nations. They're the nations of the UK to feed into the UK Championship. That does make some sort of sense, but I think it would create a bit of uproar if you qualified for what is the second biggest ranking event on the circuit based on only four other events rather than all the ranking events over two years which is how it's done at the moment um, in terms of where you're seeded and so on where you come in um, I think the separate qualifying in Ponds Forge in Sheffield worked really well I quite like that I mean I was there commentating and, and worked on judgement day uh, judgement day, the, the, the last round of qualifying yeah and, and I thought that worked really, really well so I, I'm not sure that using the home nations to provide the players for the UK Championship um, would be where I would go Not least because of course The whole point of the new format Was to get the top 16 at the venue Which you wouldn't get under this format Because guaranteed some of them Would would, would end up missing out um, Top 16, 16 qualifiers I think that's a good model for this tournament But as a, if there was a new event created um, Based on the home nations Listen, I'm all for new events So that would be all to the good Mark and John Now I met Mark and John um, In the hotel It was raining uh, not in the hotel But <laughs> but um, anyway well, They say Well done to everyone involved in laying on the UK Championship this year We spent a few days in York And were very impressed with all the extra effort made for the fans In the Qzone area we watched and interacted with players Such as Judd, Lazowski bingham And one of our favourites, Jamie Clark What a credit to the sport they all were Inside the Barbican there were ample toilets Things of interest to look at, a photo booth And all the staff and stewards went above and beyond to be friendly and helpful The whole event was fantastic Thank you for the photo we got with you. Now we finally met. It really will be going on display in our new snooker room. Well, that's that's your prerogative, of course. (laughs) But uh, thank you. Yes, well, I mean, and that's just great to hear the feedback, you know, because we haven't always heard great feedback from tournaments. But that sounds like Mark and John would go again next year to York. That sounds like a winner for them. And that's what we want. People pay their own money. And it's not just... And they live in London It's not just the tickets It's the travel it's the, it's the accommodation You've got to feed yourself It's not cheap You know It's not cheap It's it's you, You've got to um, Spend a bit of money To go to these tournaments So you're getting back value Is what you're saying And in particular You mentioned there The players We should um, I, I haven't got a full list Of everyone who did The demonstrations And the coaching sessions but credit to all of them who did do it, and you mentioned some there. I know that the Judd Trump and Jack Lazowski one went down particularly well because obviously they're just great shot makers and kind of quite exciting characters to, to watch on a snooker table. But to all the guys who took part in that, well done to them and well done to Will Snooker Tour for laying the whole thing on because I've heard nothing but good things standing in that viewing area, just being close to the action and not just watching matches but actually seeing how players practice and the little routines they do and then giving you advice and at one stage you know, Judd handed his cue to someone and uh, let them play a few shots. So, yeah, it, it, it was a it was a really good thing to see. Well done to the players for taking part. And, uh, like I say, well done to Super Stukator for actually listening to some of the feedback, including on this podcast, when we had our fan special, and actually incorporating it and saying, OK, what can we do to improve the experience? They they listened, they acted, and it went down really well. Now, not everyone is uh, necessarily on board with the changes. Jarrah Warman, watching in Duluth, Minnesota, Greetings once again from America. I probably won't be the only one to notice this, but it looks like one downside to the new UK Championship format is the amount of upsets in the first round. Five of the top eight in the rankings have lost. I imagine this is due in great degree to the qualifiers coming in with great recent form. I'm now less enthusiastic about the format as I was initially. Well, you know, that's, that's your prerogative, of course. To, I, I didn't see any... Pro- I like shocks. Um, you don't want every top player to go out, I don't think, but I think shocks great interest. And Sam Craigie, I mean, he was one of the stars of the tournament. Um... He had a really good run to the, uh, to the quarterfinals. Played really well. Kind of suggested he could go on now, and I mean he's already beaten Steve Maguire in the, the Gym Masters qualifier. Suggested he can go on and, and push on and, and have maybe his most successful season. I think it's good to see a few new faces. Jamie Clark was mentioned. Um, he beat Mark Williams, albeit Mark was uh, <laughs> had a, a, a dicky tummy. I think is the polite way of putting it. Um, and I believe he still does a week on, um, which uh, we, we wish him well. But anyway, uh yeah, well, okay, not not everyone likes to see upsets, but uh, you'll get upsets, I think, in any format. Though um, it was less likely in the original format with the flat one to eight, but then of course players had to sort of slog their way through to the last thirty-two, and we might have lost a few along the way. But anyway, you know, completely uh, entitled to to say that. Now, Joe Richards has asked an interesting question here, which uh, which I was discussing with uh, with someone actually at the venue. He says, I hope you enjoyed the UK Championship. I've got a curious question. I'd like you to re- apply your wonderful level-headedness he- to, please. Why are players in snooker judged by the number of ranking titles they've won? Surely it should be simple. Surely it should simply be the number of titles. For example, the history books will say Ronnie O'Sullivan hasn't won a single ranking title this season, where- whereas he's won two of the biggest tournaments of the season by a mile. I think the ranking title isn't a great one, especially when there's so many more ranking titles these days. I think they should just judge players by overall titles. Also, let's say Jack Lazowski won the Masters. Commentators will still be saying Jack Lazowski has won zero ranking titles, whereas they'll say Dave Gilbert has won, but Lazowski's achievement would be far superior. I wonder where the whole categorisation obsession with ranking titles come from. Uh. I'm loving the podcast, Keep Up The Good Work. I think Snooker Scene Podcast and Talking Snoopy Podcast should combine and create a super podcast. Imagine how massive that podcast would be. It'd be long, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, well, of course, we do come together at Christmas uh, like, like uh sort of, sort of armistice Armistice. Uh, and last year it was long And I, uh, I was drinking the horrible wine But we're, we're drifting from the point here Which is the ranking titles It's a very good question I mean, if, if we were going to assess players on every title won Steve Davis is still top of that list Because he won a lot of uh, invitation events And, and, and long-forgotten tournaments back in the day In the 80s Here's what I think, okay? I think ranking titles have become the measure um, because of the way the circuit has developed. If you go back 40 years, there were very few. You had the World Championship, and then a few started to be introduced, but they were a few, and for several years, you know, you had four, five, six, and they were, they were prestigious because of that, because there were so few. So if you won a ranking title, it was a major title, and without sort of restart, <laughs> I know I say this most weeks, but without restarting the Triple Crown debate, this was, back then, the measure of... A major title. It was a ranking tournament. The Masters was not considered one of the majors back then because the ranking titles had that sense of prestige because of their rarity. If you won one, it was considered a big achievement. So like the British Open, the Mercantile Classic, the International, the Grand Prix, these were the, the tournaments as well as the World and the UK Championships that you really wanted to win. Now, of course, what's happened in more recent years, as you've identified, Joe, is that there's far more of them. Um, and, you know, we count a ranking title as being equal to one another so winning the world championship that's one winning the shootout that's one of course they're very different uh, we know that and some ranking tournaments feel more prestigious than others for example tournaments with a two session final as opposed to you know being a best of seven or, or one session um so the question is i suppose is what you're saying is should we continue to sort of go to ranking titles first here's what Here's the, 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 the sort of argument for that, and I was talking to someone about this, and they made the point, the reason ranking titles are still considered to be uh, an important measure is that they're tournaments everyone can play in. There are certain events people can't play in. Uh, for example, you know the Masters is with the top 16. Now, obviously, you, you, everyone's got the chance to qualify for it, but there's going to be most of the tour, we're talking, well, 115 players on the tour, will not be in the Masters this year, it's just the top 16 in the world. Um, as of now, by the way, rather than when it should be, which is after the English Open. But that's another argument. Um, So, yeah, that's it, really. I think, you know, there's a lot of tournaments where only the top players can get in and then that, obviously, and they get in them because they're the top players, but that then boosts their total, uh, maybe artificially. Um, But, of course, the the thing with ranking titles is, I mean, Steve Davis, you know, if there'd been this many tournaments in in his heyday, he would have won at least probably 50. Same with Hendry. So, that list is kind of, it's not comparing in a way like for like. But I think ranking titles, because they're uh, events where everyone has played in, are, con- are still considered to be the measure. Now then, there is a slight caveat to that. There are now ranking events that not everyone plays in. I mean, the Tour Championship is for eight players. So that does muddy the waters a little bit. Um The Champion of Champions, we actually, for ITV, I put together um, some stats where we actually did... List or, or, or name the number of titles everyone had won, rather than just ranking titles, because it seemed for that event to be more relevant. Because some people qualified winning non-ranking events, but you raise an interesting point And uh, anyone else with any ideas about that? Why, sure, should ranking titles still be kind of the first thing we look at? Because yeah, the Masters, the Champion of Champions, these tournaments are big to win. And, and, and Mark Allen, for example, has won them both, but they're not uh, included in the in the now eight kind of ranking <laughs> events he's won. And yeah, then, we had uh, someone asking last week about why a game of Snoopy is called a frame. Tim Sandal has come up with an answer. He says, there's all these things, there's no consensus. However, inspired by your question, I've searched through the British newspaper archive curated by the British Library. The earliest reference to a frame I can find is back in 1908, 19 years prior to the First World Championship taking place. The reference appears in S- Sporting Life, published on the 5th of June, 1908, on page 8. It's is very uh, exacting the, the, the major news organisations that don't have this level of uh, of uh, sort of integrity. But anyway, we continue. The article is headlined, Billiards, Snooker on is Divided. John Roberts v Tom Reese for £100. Here, the first thing of interest... Oh, by the way, £100 back then, that's a lot of money. Anyway, here, the first thing of interest is that any reference to snooker is placed under the heading Billiards. The reference to a frame is in the context of a frame of reds. The triangle used to set the red balls up in a pyramid formation was traditionally made of wood, and often had a, the triangle shape contained with a square. Hence, frame is a reference to containing the red balls in the required formation prior to the commencement of play. Later newspapers published in 1908 and 1909 confirm this, mentioning frame of reds and the frame as, is listed as a billiard table accessory. The Sporting Chronicle, for instance, describes a player smashing up a frame of reds in a game of snooker pool. The, pl- the player bashing the balls was one Edward Diggle, who's mentioned in Clive Everton's entertaining "A History of Billiards" book as a languid, rye man with a casual, half upright playing style, with both legs inelegantly bent, which is classic Everton. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, I mean that's that's pretty uh, thorough, Tim. And uh, well, uh, you know, we've got no other uh, we've got no other no reason to doubt your uh, your view on that. I think somebody, someone else, actually, and uh, maybe I should have looked this up before I started, but someone else got in contact with the same. Uh, an explanation um, So whoever that was I'll, I'll find it eventually But whoever that was Thank you And uh, that, well we'll go with that We've got nothing else to um, Or no reason not to go with it So we'll we'll go with that And uh, thank you for taking the time To look it up I think by now people know That uh, the, the this podcast is not really planned So we go back to the UK Championship now And Kerry Richards I've just watched Karen Wilson's outrageous Fluke black against Mark Allen It jumped out of the corner pocket Rolled up the rail And into the middle now, this is a very niche question would this have been a foul had it hit a block of chalk where sometimes you see a player leave their chalk on the rail between shots? Whew. Well, I would say yes. Um, I'm not a referee and I'm, I, I, I'm sure this is in the rules somewhere but I would say it would have to be. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I don't think it's ever happened. So it's one of those things, referees, they, they don't mind a drink and uh, that's fine. We we'll, we you know, we, all, uh, we all enjoy a drink now and again. Um and and they sit around uh, late at night Discussing things that can never happen um, But then delighted to know the rule if it does And occasionally it does um, There was that incident years ago at the Crucible Where Graham Dot put his fist in the pocket To stop the white And Mark Selby uh, picked the white up Thinking he could put it in the D And it, because he hadn't left the bed at the table He was fouled by the referee Alan Chamberlain uh, And Alan Chamberlain, I can tell you he'd been waiting a long time <laughs> for, for that to happen So we'll see I, I suspect that he's a foul But if any referees are listening Maybe they could clear that up. Uh, and uh, there is another one here about the UK Championship, actually. Kevin Booth, he went along. He said, uh, now, that he wrote this uh, after the initial Monday evening he'd been to, to York. He said, I emailed after arriving back on the Monday night after having been in York for the first Sunday all day. OK, so we went, yeah, so went Sunday and Monday afternoon. Great changes, in my opinion. The set is great. I was up in the balcony today and must say a slight complaint was that the Eurosport commentary area is heard from the seats in the balcony. This is nothing against you and Neil, I love your commentary, but surely they could soundproof the area. It was just a little distraction to some spectators. Uh, some would say lucky to get it, Kevin. But anyway, I, I take your point. Yes, it, it wasn't completely soundproof, you're quite correct. We did have one chap come up and basically bang on the door. <laughs> but uh, other people seemed to enjoy it. We had a few thumbs up, so, uh, you know, it's a little added bonus. Anyway, Kevin continues, Great to see the Q-Zone area and the walls with the history on too. Unfortunately, I missed the final for the first time in York due to the World Cup. One of the feedback is that while fans are in the arena today, World Snooker Tour put the Northern Ireland 2023 tickets on sale. This isn't fair on fans who attend events and can't go online while in the auditorium. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a fair point, that. I mean, I think, I, I, I think I'm um, right to say that the tickets, they usually go on sale in the mornings. Of course, there's no morning play. Now, I can't swear that that was the case with the, the, the Northern Ireland uh, Open, but uh, in general, yes, uh, you know, it, it should be fair for all. But I think I think it's usually 10 in the morning, anyway. Luke Bishop. Now, we had this thing last year about uh, is Luca Brassell, does he have the worst record at the Crucible? (laughs) Sorry, Luca, if you're listening, but this is what was being discussed. And uh, Luke Bishop writes, I was wondering who the converse would be, the best record or best achievement at the Crucible, but the worst record elsewhere. I think all the runners-up have won ranking tournaments elsewhere, so we look at the semi-finalists. Gary Wilson jumps out as someone who's made the single table but never won a ranking event. Others in this category are Darren Morgan, Andy Hicks, Ian McCulloch and Joe Swale. Joe got to two consecutive World Semis, so probably is our winner. But a special mention for poor Alain Robidoux. Most famous for the spat with Ronnie, the final paragraph of his Wikipedia page reads... Okay, so this is from Wikipedia. Uh, (coughs) Robidoux reached the semi-finals of the 1997 World Snooker Championship, defeating Brian Morgan, Stefan Masrosis and Lee Walker before losing to eventual champion Ken Doherty. He subsequently slid rapidly down the rankings. Robidoux blamed his decline on the destruction of his favourite Q, which he referred to as the eel. When Robidoux returned the queue to the man from whom he had bought it to have it mended, the man objected to Robidoux having fixed a sponsor's logo to the butt and smashed the queue to pieces. Several years later, Robidoux was asked whether the passage of time may have eased his anger towards the queue maker. He responded, I want to kill him. As Luke adds there, poor guy. I'm pretty sure he said that to me, you know. I, I remember interviewing him and he definitely said that. I want to kill him. Um, so that may have been me. But anyway, yeah, that was rotten what happened to Lane Robidoux. That was the season after. Um he sent the queue off to get it get mended and uh, yeah the, the bloke smashed it into four pieces um, and it was never the same again Won a whole match the next season actually uh, but in terms of your question I think Darren Morgan actually you know possibly of the, of the players you list there could be the winner because um, he won the Irish Masters he was a top 8 player very tough player Darren still going now in the amateur events the seniors events just loves playing snooker uh, but he was a he was a terrific player actually um, and so maybe maybe he will be the winner but if anyone's got any views on that Uh, Do let us know. Now then, we uh, we travel to America. Now this this is from Michael Holt, not that one. Uh, Unfortunately, Michael, your email has come out a little bit um, well, higgledy piggledy, to use an old-fashioned phrase. There's just a few odd characters. Do your own jokes there. Uh, There's a few odd characters that make it a little bit hard to read. But anyway, he says, "Greetings from San Diego." Following your most excellent coverage of UK Judgment Day, and as a regular to the podcast, it's clear there's quite a snooker fan base here in the US. I lived in San Francisco for five years and used to drive an hour south to San Jose, home to California snooker, a real hotbed of talent with four tables run by former US snooker champion Ajaya Prabhaka. So if we ask Michael here, do you know the way to San Jose? The answer is yes. Anyway, uh, I also visited the Arizona Snooker Academy in Phoenix, which has four superb tournament standard-style tables. Here in San Diego, there's not so much. I've found three billiard halls, each of which has a full-size snooker table, but only one has proper snooker cloth. The other two have Napolis pool cloth on and, and exceedingly tight pockets. I know it won't translate well on the pod, but I've attached... I'm sorry, I, I'm like I said, there's a few glitches in the email, which makes it quite hard to read, but anyway, I'm doing my best. Uh, I know it won't translate well on the pod but I've attached a few photos for you to see what I mean. Most of play on these tables is a gambling game of golf, but players also play eight ball with full-size balls, uh, two uh, one quarter in diameter, which makes potting even harder than the usual snooker balls. I've played a few of the regulars at snooker, and there's growing interest in the game here, fueled in large part to YouTube and all the great channels available there. I want you to ask if you've considered a Facebook group for your podcast listeners. It would be a great way to connect with fellow snooker fans, Especially those scattered around these United States. You could also live stream the pod when in suitable locations and feature other content, photo, videos to supplement your wonderful output. Well, thank you, Michael, but I mean, the idea of me live streaming anything. I mean, you know, I'd need a, I'd need to go on an open university course to, to find out how to do that. And, uh, I, I'm kind of, I, I, I'm not a great fan of Facebook. Um, I know it, it's connected a lot of people, but I'm not a huge fan of that. I'm not on Facebook and uh, don't really want to be. So uh, although your idea is a good one, uh I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that um <laughs> you, you know you, you, yeah i'm not a great fan of it uh you, thank you for the pictures yeah i i can see what you mean um but it's great to have you know interest in 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 these parts of the world and speaking of which we have of course our correspondent in canada david burney uh he says uh, sorry for the delay reports were overseas but snooker history was made in canada a couple of weeks ago ahmed ali al-sayed has become the first US player to hold a snooker tour card. He was also the first American to play in the Crucible Theatre last spring when he played in the World Senior Snooker Championship. Ali won the Pan Am Open Snooker Championship in Toronto, Canada, at the Corner Bank, a great room run by John White and Jim White. It's been a dream for this Egyptian who fell in love with the game as a young boy when his dad took him to some exclusive clubs in Egypt and his young eyes were filled with wonder about this great game. Ali works out of the New York Athletic Club and is thrilled to be on the Pro Tour. Another dream is coming true for Canadian Vito uh, P- Polo. I'm going to say, that is, who on the senior side of the Pan Am Championships uh, won that title, giving him the chance to represent Canada at the Crucible Theatre this coming spring at the World Seniors Championship. Good luck, gentlemen. A dream come true for me as I was able to commentate on a frame of snooker with the great Jim White, a true gentleman and great to hear as many stories of the time in England with the game of snooker Just to jump in there David Jim White was a, was a terrific commentator for Sky He formed a, a partnership with affiliates For many years And Classic example of Jim I mean he was twice a World Championship quarter finalist But he was never a, a, a Sort of big tournament winner But a Classic example You don't have to be To be a good commentator He obviously understood the game He had great passion for it Great voice And just a good Good guy yeah. I think And yeah he was He was terrific on On Sky's coverage We're going about 30 years now But on the snooker He was terrific Anyway David continues, one question I have. Kevin Patrick, who's head referee over here, showed me a great trick with the Peridon ball, with the Peridon ballers for re-spotting balls, say in a foul and miss situation. There is a little notch in these ball markers in the middle. He showed me that you take the mark, the make, the marker to the cue ball, pull the cue ball away, and then use a tailor's pencil and make a little mark on the table where the notch is. Bring the cue ball back, take away the marker and play off. If a miss happens, you can take the Peridon marker. Line the notch on the ball marker up with the mark on the table and roll the cue ball in this position. No need to take a lot of time to respot as the mark is right there. I wonder why professional referees have not applied this theory. I know the technology is there on big events to use the monitors to respot balls, but over in North America, we're not there yet, and this method saves a lot of time and guesswork. Your thoughts? I found that quite hard to follow, what you were saying, actually, but it seems to be you making a little mark, and then you, you know where the ball was. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean... it, it I think we can all agree that the um, the um business with the foul and a miss and they get the screen up and then it's, you know, the to me, to you, Chuckle Brothers Act, that's very archaic. You see some sports, rugby union, cricket, football, you know, they, they, when they have to refer to the video referee, there's a bank of screens and there's all sorts of technology and, you know, they, it's a little bit more advanced. I, I do feel that it can go on a little bit too long, so anything that can speed it up in snooker um, maybe is a good thing. Uh now, pa- Pavel, Pavel, Pavel uh, has emailed about, uh, what does he say here? Here's a song that's not related to snooker, but it's cheerful and nice. It obviously mentions one of the greatest snooker scenes. I've just been listening to the podcast and got reminded of it. Now, this is a song called uh, Barbican. So this is why uh, pa- Pavel has uh, thought of it. It's by Keith Hudson and Friends. It's on Trojan Records. I'm going to play a little bit, but not too much because I don't want to have to pay them. So I'm going to play lit- literally 15 seconds. And, and uh, we pick it up a few seconds in. He's just, Keith's just getting going. I've got the girl and she lives down. Down. so far prevent me. But I'm not I know i may- that's plenty. Well, that's, uh, that's not about the barber in York, but uh, a, a, a perfectly, uh, perfectly nice song. Um, <laughs> we're not a, we're not a, a music show necessarily, uh, or even specifically. Now then, uh, I think we'll do one more. We just just come in actually as I record this. James, one. Seeing uh, we're back to the UK Championship, which is where we started. Seeing Ding's recent performance in the UK Championship final, I can't help feeling that something deep inside Ding is broken. I just think he's never been the same since losing to Selby two years in a row at the World Championships. Those losses were sad, brutal and devastating. What do you think? (laughs) The semi-final one was pretty devastating, I think, because there's something about losing in those semi-finals after four sessions. It was a hard match. Selby makes it a hard match, of course. Um, But he's kind of come good after that. I mean, he's won the UK Championship since then. Um, I think there's a number of factors with Ding. Most recently, definitely the pandemic. He, he had to spend essentially ten months away from his wife and child. I mean, it's very, very difficult. Um, and he just focused on snooker, but clearly missed them. Then he took a long break in China, which he was entitled to do when he when he was reunited with them. And maybe came back not quite sharp. And you know, it, it, the standard is so high that you, you can lose a bit of edge. He came back, I thought, really well this week. The defeat of Ronnie O'Sullivan speaks for itself. But in general, he's. he's, he's I mean, I did the match with Barry Hawkins, the first match. I thought he played really well in that. Um, Obviously, didn't get the job done in the final. He'll be disappointed, but it was good to see him in a final. And I hope you know he presses on and we see him back in the top sixteen because that's where he belongs. I don't think there's something broken in him. No, I think you know on his day he can he can produce the goods. Some of the events maybe it's hard to get absolutely motivated for. One thing, and I've said this on the commentary a couple of times last week. One thing that did him a favour in York at the UK Championship was he didn't have to play in the morning because at the Home Nations it seems he's always on in the morning. And the reason for that, of course, is because. Chinese time, it's early evening, and, and television will pay big money to to make sure they see Ding in that uh, in you know in, in that slot. But playing at ten o'clock in the morning every day, I don't think anyone really <laughs> really wants to do. I mean, okay, once or twice, yes, but every time, which seems to be the case for Ding, uh, I'm not so sure about. So, uh, it, it, you know that that was a good, that was a good thing I think for him uh, last week that he didn't have to play in the mornings. Um, but uh, I think we'll see plenty more of him this season, and I think that he proved. That he's a quality player. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a great fan of his. I think everybody is. Now, that's it for this week. Now, there'll be no podcast next week. I'm taking a short break. But we return in a fortnight. Um, and it's a, a trick. I, I don't like to say special edition because, you know, you, you, you're entitled to say we'll be the judge of that. But it's special for me because December uh, this year marks 25 years since I started working in professional snooker. December 1997, I started... And uh, despite uh, what a lot of people might have felt, I'm still going. Uh, I've had a variety of roles. I'm very grateful to be continuing um in the roles that I'm continuing in. And uh, I thought I would do a little look back. But I would like... I'm going to pr- do my own memories of that time. But I would like your memories of the last 25 years. If we go back to December 1997, Ken Doherty was the reigning world champion. At that point, Ronnie O'Sullivan had won one UK championship. None of the class of 92, Ronnie, Mark Williams and John Higgins had won the World Championship. Stephen Hendry was tied on six world titles with Steve Davis and Ray Reardon. Uh, and here's the players who hadn't at that point turned professional, okay? Neil Robertson, Sean Murphy, Mark Selby, Judd Trump, Ding Jun Wee, Mark Allen. None of those players, none of those guys had turned professional. Um, because guess what? It was 25 years ago. And actually, if you look at the top 16 now, uh, just looking down the list, I think only the, the, Ronnie, Mark and John... I would say Barry Hawkins, Stuart Bingham, they they were the only players, so five players in the current top 16 who were professionals back in 1997. So it was a while ago, a lot's happened in that time, good and bad and indifferent, (laughs) and I thought I would uh, sort of look back at my personal moments, but I would like your personal moments. So we start in December 97, right up to the present day, they can be personal in terms of you going to see a particular match you remember, maybe in that time you went to your first snooker tournament or just finals you remember matches you remember watching on TV. Let us know what has impressed you in that time um, and let's keep it positive you know good memories good 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 feelings um, yeah it's it's been uh, it's been you know quite a roller coaster for me. I started at the WPsa I, I went freelance I ended up commentating and lots of other things in between, not least this podcast. Um, and of course in that time the media has changed massively. There was no podcasting back then. Um, I think I'm right in saying Jake Humphrey invented it two years ago. So yeah, so yes let us know. Snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. dot com. mail dot com. Your memories of the last quarter century. Now there'll be people listening of course who weren't snooker fans, maybe weren't alive actually <laughs> twenty five years ago, that's fine. But it doesn't have to be starting at ninety seven. But at some point in the last quarter of a century and maybe what attracted you to snooker. I'm guessing it's usually introduced by a family member or you see it on television or whatever it is. Maybe, you know, you just like the look of one of the players or, or your friend took you along and you got hooked. Whatever it was, let us know your own memories of the last 25 years and uh, we'll read, uh, I'd say the best ones, we'll read all of them out if we have to <laughs> next time. Um, so, yes, that's coming up in two weeks. There'll be no podcast next week um, because I'm taking a break. Although the Scottish Open, of course, will be on uh, Eurosport, we're back, back in uh, Scotland in Edinburgh, uh, one of the fine cities in Britain. And, uh, that'll be a good week. We start Monday. But, uh, in terms of the podcast, we're having a, a week off and then we regather, we regroup for tw- uh, 25 years, um, memories of the last, uh, quarter century. Uh, in the meantime, we're members of the Sports Social Network. They have other podcasts. I'm sure many of them are about the, uh, the World Cup, uh, which is, which has just begun. Um, we're not a football football podcast, so I'm not going to share my opinions on that. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for all your emails as ever, and uh, as we always say, and we do always say it, goodbye. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.